Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So Father, we open your word this morning for feeding, for food for ourselves. We ask that you would strengthen us, that you would make us healthy and vibrant in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm halfway through listening to a novel by John Grisham called Sycamore Row. I love Grisham. Uh, And this novel is set in rural Mississippi in the 1980s, where racial tensions were high. Um, And in the novel, there's a white lawyer called Jake Brigance, and he hires a young black woman to be his paralegal, and her name is Portia. And soon after he hires her, Jake invites Portia over to dinner in his home with his wife and daughter. So she comes over, and as she steps through the door, Jake realizes that this is actually the first time he's ever had a black person over to dinner in his home. And at the same moment, Portia realizes that this is the first time she's had dinner in a white person's home. And as I heard that moment in the audiobook, uh, I found that very striking. Because Jake's not racist. He's actually the most popular lawyer in town among the black residents because he takes up their cases and defends their causes. But it was still a brand new step for Jake when he had Portia over to dinner. And that made me wonder for each of us whether there are certain types of people we have never or would never invite into our homes or into whose homes we would never set foot Maybe it's because of race, or maybe because of religion, or because of socioeconomic status, or because of some physical or mental illness, or even because of political views. I wonder if there's a line that we draw mentally between people we're happy to have over to our homes and people who aren't welcome. Maybe that's an intentional line, or maybe it's not really intentional. We just hadn't really thought about it, a bit like Jake. But unfortunately, I think that's totally, completely normal. Pretty much everybody has some sort of line that they draw. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 10, Peter and Cornelius were two men who drew that line very intentionally. So each man, if they met in public, might be polite and civil to the other. But it would have been unthinkable for either man to set foot in the other's home. The very idea would have been repugnant, even offensive. Because the line between Peter and Cornelius was drawn both because of race and religion. It was Jew against Gentile and monotheism against polytheism. And on Peter's side, at least, the dividing line between those two men was codified into a law. Because he says to Cornelius and his household in verse 28, that you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. And when Peter says that, we know from the Old Testament that it's not unlawful according to the law of Moses. So when Peter says that, he must mean that it's unlawful according to the laws of the Pharisees. That it actually made a rule saying you cannot associate with people from other nations. So humanly speaking, there was little to no chance that these two men would ever spend time together or get to know each other. But in this story, God had other ideas. God really wanted these two men to get together. And we can see how much he wanted it to happen when we look at how hard he worked to make it happen. Look at that. So in verse 3, God sent an angel to Cornelius telling him all about Peter. Then in verse 11, he gave Peter a vision telling him all about Cornelius. 
Then, in verse 19, he spoke to Peter and commanded him to go with the men. And just to seal the deal, in verse 44, God sent the Holy Spirit upon Cornelius' household while Peter was there with them to prove to Peter that this man was welcome. So God was heavily involved in this interaction, obviously orchestrating every part of it, bringing about his desired outcome. He was telling all the players, this is what's going to happen in this way. And so we're left in no doubt that saving Cornelius was a work of God. And it was an important landmark in the unfolding plan of God. God was doing something brand new through this interaction. He was smashing through racial and religious boundaries and he was bringing outsiders in and calling the unclean clean. Cornelius and his household are the first true Gentiles in the book of Acts to be baptized. And we can see that while God was healing his own relationship with Cornelius, he was also healing the relationship between Cornelius and Peter, right? Because Peter went to Cornelius' house. And we now know what a big deal that was. So notice in verse 17 that when Cornelius' men first arrive at Peter's house in Joppa, they don't even go to the front door. They don't go to the front door. They stand outside the gate and they shout. Can you imagine doing that at somebody's house? But such was the cultural separation between the two men. They didn't even feel welcome inside the garden gate to knock on the front door. But because of the Holy Spirit's nudging and the vision that Peter saw, he invited these men into his house. First marvelous thing. And then he went with them and he stayed at Cornelius' house. Second marvelous thing. And Luke marks this as a marvelous thing, a marvelous part of the story, because he ends the whole story of Cornelius on this note, with this idea, on this point. He says, they asked Peter to remain for some days. And you know with a Bible story that whatever comes last is the punchline. That's the thing to keep in your mind as the scene fades to black. And what we see in this story is Peter staying in Cornelius' house. So the message of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit didn't just change Cornelius' relationship with God. It also profoundly changed Peter's relationship with Cornelius. Right? And we can't pretend that the first thing has really happened unless we see evidence of the second thing. If we don't know all the children of God, all the baptized followers of Jesus, as our own brothers and sisters, as our own family, people who are welcome in our home, regardless of any dividing line, any ethnic or economic or political distinction, then we don't really know God. Because true love for God produces love for all God's people. And true reconciliation with God produces reconciliation with all God's people. Amen? Because the same God is Father of all. The same Jesus is Saviour of all. And the same Spirit brought all of us to life. So our God is the God of all nations. And there are three aspects to that revelation that I want to draw out from the story of Cornelius. So first, the God of all nations cares about all the nations. Second, he's going to be the judge of all the nations. And third, he's ready to save all the nations. And we can see all three of those things in Cornelius himself, even before 
he receives the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 2 and what, Paul, um, what uh, Luke shows us about uh, Cornelius. Luke writes that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, and prayed continually to God. So three things about Cornelius. He feared God, he gave alms to the poor, and he prayed continually. And those three things about him teach us the three true things about the God of all nations. So first, the God of all nations cares about all the nations. Cornelius knew this somewhere deep in his heart because he gave alms to the poor. He was a centurion, so he wasn't a particularly wealthy man, but he had enough money to live comfortably. And without having any personal relationship with the living God or knowing anything true about God, he knew instinctively that he should do what he could to look after the poor. And that's a good thing. And we can find modern examples of people who are like that. It's right. When the angel visits Cornelius in verse 4, the angel says to him, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. So God liked that he did that. He liked that Cornelius prayed and gave to the poor. It made God happy. Why did it make him happy? Because God cares about the poor and needy. He cares about all the suffering in the world. The mothers starving in Ethiopia, the orphan street children in India, the prisoners in North Korea, the teenagers in the slums of Brazil, the American elderly dying alone in forgotten nursing homes. Their cries reach God's ear and their plight moves his heart. He cares for every broken heart in every dark corner of the earth he made. Not one is forgotten. Not a single tear falls uncollected. And when a person anywhere does anything to alleviate the suffering of the poor, it matters to God because God cares. And second, and connected with that, God is going to be the judge of all nations. He is the God who cares and he's the God who judges. The nations are accountable to him, even if they've never heard of him. It says in uh, Acts 10, uh, verse 2, that Cornelius feared God. I'm going to explore that idea for a bit, uh, that Cornelius feared God. And Cornelius' fear was somehow connected with his concern for the poor. It sprung from some internal conviction that people would answer to God for this problem. So all that suffering that I just mentioned from all around the world, is it necessary? Do some people have to be poor? Some starve and some live in slums. Does the world's economy somehow require that? Is it a hard fact that we just have to live with? No. People have done that. Sure, it's not in our power to make the world perfect. We've fallen. We're going to get sick and die. There are going to be earthquakes and buildings are going to fall down. There are going to be famines and droughts and places with not enough food and water. But even despite the fall, this good earth is big enough for everyone to have space and it produces enough food for everyone to eat and it yields enough materials for everyone to build a house. So poverty is a human problem. Slums are a human problem. Slavery and oppression are human problems. Abuse is a human problem. Terrorism and war and violence and false imprisonment are human problems. People create them. People perpetuate them. And people fail to put a stop to them. And all those people will answer to God. Whoever they are and wherever they live, God will bring them to account. God is going to dignify their humanity 
by holding them responsible for what they've done. And that means kings and governments and army generals and propagandists and journalists and activists and terrorists and traffickers and petty criminals and all the indolent rich who stood by comfortably and did nothing. They will have their day in court, standing before the righteous judge, and we will stand there too, in the same court. And friends, knowing that reality is essential if we are to fear the Lord as Cornelius did. So a bit earlier we read from Malachi chapter 3, and if you want you can turn back there. It's on page 802, Malachi chapter 3. And this is a prophecy about Jesus, the messenger of the Lord, who's going to suddenly appear in his temple. So Malachi chapter 3, listen again to what it says about Jesus in verse 5. It says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So notice that the fear of the Lord is strongly linked to his judgment to the reality that God will call everyone to account for the things that they have done and not done. And the people who persist in evil do not fear this. But Cornelius did. He feared God. And he acted accordingly by caring for the poor. And that's why his prayers and his arms ascended as a memorial before God. His fear didn't save him. And his charity didn't save him. And even his prayers didn't save him. Only the gospel of Jesus saved him. But his fear and his charity and his prayers paved the way for God to reach him with the good news of Jesus. And Cornelius was ready to listen to God because he already feared God. He already took God seriously. So I want to say a little more about this idea of the fear of the Lord because sometimes we have trouble understanding it. I want to help us by imagining three children, three little girls. And the first is arrogant, disobedient, and disrespectful. She doesn't do anything her parents say, and she argues with anyone who tries to correct her and insults them. All right, that's the first girl. The second girl is considerate and responsive. She runs into her parents' arms when they come home and is quick to do what they ask of her. If they correct her, she apologizes and takes their words to heart. And here's the third little girl. She's quiet and submissive. She trembles when her parents enter the room and she avoids them when she can. When they speak to her, she nods silently and tries to do whatever they say. I ask you, which of these little girls fears her parents in the way the Bible calls us to fear the Lord? And I hope you'd say right away that it's the second little girl. Because the first girl has no fear of her parents at all, right? She doesn't do what they say because she knows that there won't be any consequences. We would expect to find that her parents have never disciplined her in any kind of effective way. And the third little girl is clearly abused. Her parents are tyrants. They've cowed her into submission with bullying and threats. She's afraid of them, but it's because they mistreat her. They're violent and unpredictable. But the second little girl fears her parents as we have been called to fear the Lord. Her kind of respectful obedience can only have come about 
through years of patient and effective discipline. Children like her are never born, trust me. They are only made. Her parents have standards for her behavior and they maintain them patiently and consistently. Discipline, the disobedience has consistent consequences and she knows what they are. And at the same time, she loves her parents and isn't afraid to run into their arms. And that shows that they're trustworthy, that they're entirely predictable. And because their expectations of her are consistently communicated and upheld, they've created the only safe environment for warm, loving relationship. That's what we mean when we talk about the fear of the Lord. He is a righteous judge who will answer every deed with consequences. But he's also a good, kind, and trustworthy father who's consistent and predictable in all his ways. And if we do what is right, will we not be accepted? So this is exactly the way Cornelius feared God, just like the second little girl. His giving to the poor shows that he understood God's justice, and his constant prayers show that he understood God's goodness and trustworthiness. Even though he seems basically ignorant of who God is. So if you look at verse 25 again, when Peter came to him, Cornelius fell at Peter's feet and worshipped him. And that's just completely wrong, isn't it? Anyone who knew the first thing about the God of heaven would know not to do that. So Cornelius was a clueless Roman centurion. But nevertheless, his heart told him that God cares about all nations and that he's going to judge all nations. But what Cornelius didn't know is what Peter had to tell him. And that's that God is ready to save all nations. Actually, Peter didn't really know that himself until he met Cornelius. Because he exclaims with astonishment in Acts 10 verse 34, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You see that Peter's learned the pattern in the isolated incident. He learned a big lesson from meeting Cornelius. The angel and the vision of food and meeting Cornelius taught him that this wasn't just an isolated story. This was the new normal, a new global pattern, a new movement of God. The gospel of Jesus wasn't just going to bulldoze through the dividing wall between Peter and Cornelius. It was going to bulldoze every dividing wall between people. All the walls of race and the walls of culture and the walls of politics and the walls of gender and the walls of economic status. They were going to be bulldozed by this gospel. God was building one new family in Jesus with a unity that far transcended any of those human divisions. He was making one new man in the place of the two. So Peter shared with Cornelius the most precious thing he had, the life-saving message of Jesus. And Cornelius believed it. And the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word, and so they were baptized. So what Peter learned is that God's ready to save all nations, but they need Jesus to be saved. Cornelius was a good man, wasn't he? He was a good man, a fine, upstanding man. But that wasn't enough to save him. His devotion and his fear of God and his almsgiving and his constant prayers weren't enough. He needed to hear about Jesus, that everyone who believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. And that, friends, is why we go into the world. It's because of all those other Corneliuses out there who need to hear the same thing. We go for the good people whose goodness isn't enough to save them. 
For all those good Muslims in Iran and Iraq, Syria, Yemen and Saudi Arabia. For all the good Jews in Israel. For all the good Hindus in India and all the good Buddhists in China and the good atheists in Europe. And we go for the bad ones too. They need the light of Jesus just as much. But think about the good ones. Think of the ones who fear God and who pray and who care for the needs of the poor. Think of all the Corneliuses out there. God cares for them and they're going to have to stand up before his judgment seat someday. But God is ready to save them. If only they can hear the same message that Peter brought to Cornelius. The message that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Men put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear to many witnesses. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness.